Section 11 of The Life of Abraham Lincoln This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Giordano The Life of Abraham Lincoln by Ward Hill Lehman. Chapter 9 Following strictly the chronological order hitherto observed in the course of this narrative, we should be compelled to break off the story of Mr. Lincoln's love affairs at New Salem, and enter upon his public career in the legislature and before the people. But, while by that means we should preserve continuity in one respect, we should lose it in another, and the reader would perhaps prefer to take in at one view all of Mr. Lincoln's courtships, save only that one which resulted in marriage. Three-quarters of a mile, or nearly so, north of Bowling Greens, and on the summit of a hill, stood the house of Bennett Abel, a small frame building, eighteen by twenty feet. Abel and his wife were warm friends of Mr. Lincoln, and many of his rambles through the surrounding country, reading and talking to himself, terminated at their door, where he always found the latch-string on the outside, and a hearty welcome within. In October, 1833, Mr. Lincoln met there Miss Mary Owens, a sister of Mrs. Abel, and, as we shall presently learn from his own words, admired her, although not extravagantly. She remained but four weeks, and then went back to her home in Kentucky. Miss Owens' mother being dead, her father married again, and Miss Owens, for good reasons of her own, thought she would rather live with her sister than with her stepmother. Accordingly, in the fall of 1836, she reappeared at Abel's, passing through New Salem on the day of the presidential election, where the men standing about the polls stared and wondered at her beauty. Twenty-eight or nine years of age, quote, she was, in the language of Mr. L. M. Green, tall and portly, weighed about 120 pounds, and had large blue eyes with the finest trimmings I ever saw. She was jovial, social, loved wit and humor, had a liberal English education, and was considered wealthy. Bill, continues our excellent friend, I am getting old, have seen too much trouble to give a lifelike picture of this woman. I won't try it. None of the poets or romance writers has ever given to us a picture of a heroine so beautiful as a good description of Miss Owens in 1836 would be. End quote. Mrs. Hardin Bale, a cousin to Miss Owens, says, quote, She was blue-eyed, dark-haired, handsome, not pretty, was rather large and tall, handsome, truly handsome, matronly-looking, over ordinary size and height and weight. Miss Owens was handsome, that is to say, noble-looking, matronly-seeming. Respecting her age and looks, 
Miss Owens herself makes the following note, August 6, 1866. Born in the year eight, fair skin, deep blue eyes, with dark curling hair, height five feet five inches, weighing about one hundred and fifty pounds. End quote. Johnson G. Green is Miss Owens' cousin, and, whilst on a visit to her in 1866, he contrived to get her version of the Lincoln courtship at great length. It does not vary in any material part from the account currently received in the neighborhood, and given by various persons whose oral or written testimony is preserved in Mr. Herndon's collection of manuscripts. Green, J.G., described her in terms about the same as those used by Mrs. Bale, adding that, quote, she was a nervous and muscular woman, very intellectual, the most intellectual woman he ever saw, with a forehead massive and angular, square, prominent, and broad. End quote. After Miss Owens returned to New Salem, in the fall of 1833, Mr. Lincoln was unremitting in his attentions, and wherever she went he was at her side. She had many relatives in the neighborhood, the Bales, the Greens, the Grahams, and, if she went to spend an afternoon or an evening with any of these, Abe was very likely to be on hand to conduct her home. He asked her to marry him, but she prudently evaded a positive answer until she could make up her mind about questionable points of his character. She did not think him coarse or cruel, but she did think him thoughtless, careless, not altogether as polite as he might be, in short, quote, deficient, as she expresses it, in those little links which make up the great chain of woman's happiness, end quote. His heart was good, his principles were high, his honor sensitive, but still, in the eyes of this refined young lady, he did not seem to be quite the gentleman. Quote, he was lacking in the smaller attentions, end quote. And, in fact, the whole affair is explained when she tells us that his education was different from hers. One day, Miss Owens and Mrs. Bowlin Green were making their way slowly and tediously up the hill to Abel's house, when they were joined by Lincoln. Mrs. Bowling Green was carrying a, quote, great, big, fat child, heavy and crossly disposed, end quote. Although the woman bent pitiably under her burden, Lincoln offered her no assistance, but, dropping behind with Miss Owens, beguiled the way according to his wishes. When they reached the summit, quote, Miss Owens said to Lincoln laughingly, You would not make a good husband, Abe. They sat on the fence, and one word brought on another, till a split or breach ensued. End quote. Immediately after this misunderstanding, Lincoln went off toward Havana on a surveying expedition, and was absent about three weeks. On the first day of his return, one of Abel's boys was sent up to town for the mail. Lincoln saw him at the post office, and asked if Miss Owens was at Mr. Abel's. The boy said yes. Tell her, said Lincoln, that I'll be down to see her in a few minutes. Now, Miss Owens had determined to spend that evening at Minter Graham's, and when the boy gave in the report, quote, she thought a moment and said to herself, 
If I can draw Lincoln up there to Graham's, it'll be all right. This scheme was to operate as a test of Abe's love, but it shared the fate of some of the best-laid schemes of mice and men, and went all agly. Lincoln, according to promise, went down to Abel's, and asked if Miss Owens was in. Mrs. Abel replied that she had gone to Graham's, about one and a half miles from Abel's due southwest. Lincoln said, Didn't you know I was coming? Mrs. Abel answered, No. But one of the children said, Yes, Ma, she did, for I heard Sam tell her so. Lincoln sat a while, and then went about his business. Quote, the fat was now in the fire, Lincoln thought as he was extremely poor, and Miss Owens very rich. It was a fling on him on that account. Abe was mistaken in his guesses, for wealth cut no figure in Miss Owens' eyes. Miss Owens regretted her course. Abe would not bend, and Miss Owens wouldn't. She said, if she had to do it over again, she would play the cards differently. She had two sons in the Southern Army. She said that if either of them had got into difficulty, she would willingly have gone to old Abe for relief. End quote. In Miss Owens' letter of July 22, 1866, it will be observed that she tacitly admitted to Mr. Gaines Green quote, the circumstances in connection with Mrs. Green and child. End quote. Although she here denies the precise words alleged to have been used by her in the little quarrel at the top of the hill, she does not deny the impression his conduct left upon her mind, but presents additional evidence of it by the relation of another incident of similar character, from which her inferences were the same. Fortunately, we are not compelled to rely upon tradition, however authentic, for the facts concerning this interesting episode in Mr. Lincoln's life. Miss Owens is still alive to tell her own tale, and we have, besides, his letters to the lady herself. Mr. Lincoln wrote his account of it as early as 1838. As in duty bound, we shall permit the lady to speak first. At her particular request, her present name and residence are suppressed. May 1, 1866. Mr. W. H. Herndon. Dear Sir, After quite a struggle with my feelings, I have at last decided to send you the letters in my possession written by Mr. Lincoln believing, as I do, that you are a gentleman of honor, and will faithfully abide by all you have said. My associations with your lamented friend were in Maynard County, whilst visiting a sister, who then resided near Petersburg. I have learned that my maiden name is now in your possession, and you have ere this, no doubt, been informed that I am a native Kentuckian. As regards Miss Rutledge, I cannot tell you anything, she having died previous to my acquaintance with Mr. Lincoln, and I do not now recollect of ever hearing him mention her name, please return the letters at your earliest convenience. Very respectfully yours, Mary S. Blank. May 22, 1866 Mr. W. H. Herndon My dear sir, Really, you catechize me in true lawyer style but I feel you will have the goodness to excuse me if I decline answering all your questions in detail, being fully assured that few women would have ceded as much as I have under all the circumstances. 
you say you have heard why our acquaintance terminated as it did. I, too, have heard the same bit of gossip, but I never used the remark which Madam Rumor says I did to Mr. Lincoln. I think I did on one occasion say to my sister, who was very anxious for us to be married, that I thought Mr. Lincoln was deficient in those little links which make up the chain of women's happiness. At least it was so in my case. Not that I believed it proceeded from a lack of goodness of heart, but his training had been different from mine. Hence there was not that congeniality which would have otherwise have existed. From his own showing, you perceive that his heart and hand were at my disposal, and I suppose that my feelings were not sufficiently enlisted to have the matter consummated. About the beginning of the year 1833, I left Illinois, at which time our acquaintance and correspondence ceased without ever again being renewed. My father, who resided in Greene County, Kentucky, was a gentleman of considerable means, and I am persuaded the few persons placed a higher estimate on education than he did. Respectfully yours, Mary S. Blank. July 22, 1866 Mr. W. H. Herndon Dear Sir, I do not think that you are pertinacious in asking the question relative to old Mrs. Bowlin Green, because I wish to set you right on that question. Your information, no doubt, came through my cousin, Mr. Gaines Green, who visited us last winter. Whilst here, he was laughing at me about Mr. Lincoln, and among other things spoke about the circumstance and connection of Mrs. Green and child. My impression is now that I tacitly admitted it, for it was a season of trouble with me, and I gave but little heed to the matter. We never had any hard feelings towards each other that I know of. On no occasion did I say to Mr. Lincoln that I did not believe he would make a kind husband, because he did not tender his services to Mrs. Green in helping of her carrying her babe. As I said to you in a former letter, I thought him lacking in smaller attentions. One circumstance presents itself just now to my mind's eye. There was a company of us going to Uncle Billy Green's. Mr. Lincoln was riding with me, and we had a very bad branch to cross. The other gentlemen were very officious in seeing that their partners got over safely. We were behind, he riding in, never looking back to see how I got along. When I rode up beside him, I remarked, quote, You are a nice fellow. I suppose you do not care whether my neck was broken or not. End quote. He laughingly replied, I suppose by way of compliment, that he knew I was plenty smart to take care of myself. In many things he was sensitive, almost to a fault. He told me of an incident, that he was crossing a prairie one day, and saw before him a hog mired down, to use his own language. He was rather fixed up, and he resolved that he would pass on without looking towards the chote. After he had gone by, he said the feeling was irresistible, and he had to look back, and the poor thing seemed to say wistfully, There now, my last hope is gone, that he deliberately got down, and relieved it from its difficulty. In many things we were congenial spirits. In politics we saw eye to eye, though since then we differed as widely as the South is from the North. But methinks I hear you say, Save me from a political woman, so say I. The last message I ever received from him was about a year after we parted in Illinois. Mrs. Abel visited Kentucky, 
and he said to her in Springfield, quote, Tell your sister that I think she was a great fool, because she did not stay here and marry me. End quote. Characteristic of the man. Respectfully yours, Mary S. Blank. Vandalia, December 13, 1836. Mary, I have been sick ever since my arrival, or I should have written sooner. It is but little difference, however, as I have very little even yet to write. And more, the longer I can avoid the mortification of looking in the post office for your letter, and not finding it, the better. You see, I am mad about that old letter yet. I don't like very well to risk you again. I'll try you once more, anyhow. The new state house is not yet finished, and consequently the legislature is doing little or nothing. The governor delivered an inflammatory political message, and it is expected there will be some sparring between the parties about it as soon as the two houses get to business. Taylor delivered up his petitions for the new county to one of our members this morning. I am told he despairs of its success, on account of all the members from Morgan County opposing it. There are names enough on the petition, I think, to justify the members from our county in going for it. If the members from Morgan oppose it, which they say they will, the chance will be bad. Our chance to take the seat of government to Springfield is better than I expected. An internal improvement convention was held here since we met, which recommended a loan of several million of dollars on the faith of the state to construct railroads. Some of the legislature are for it, and some against it. Which has the majority, I cannot tell. There is great strife and struggling for the office of the United States Senator here at this time. It is probable we shall ease their pains in a few days. The opposition men have no candidate of their own, and consequently they will smile as complacently at the angry snarl of the contending Van Buren candidates and their respective friends as the Christian does at Satan's rage. You recollect that I mentioned at the outset of this letter that I had been unwell. That is the fact, though I believe I am about well now, but that, with other things, I cannot account for, have conspired, and have gotten my spirit so low that I feel that I would rather be any place in the world than here. I really cannot endure the thought of staying here ten weeks. Write back as soon as you get this, and, if possible, say something that will please me, for really I have not been pleased since I left you. This letter is so dry and stupid that I am ashamed to send it, but with my present feelings I cannot do any better. Give my best respects to Mr. and Mrs. Abel and family. Your friend, Lincoln. Springfield, May 7, 1837. Miss Mary S. Owens. Friend Mary, I have commenced two letters to send you before this, both of which displeased me before I got half done, and so I tore them up. The first I thought was not serious enough, and the second was on the other extreme. I shall send this, turn out as it may. This thing of living in Springfield is rather a dull business, after all. At least, it is so to me. I am quite as lonesome here as I ever was anywhere in my life. I have been spoken to by but one woman since I have been here, and should not have been by her if she could have avoided it. I have never been to church yet, nor probably shall not be soon. I stay away because I am conscious I should not know how to behave myself. 
I am often thinking about what we said of your coming to live at Springfield. I am afraid you would not be satisfied. There is a great deal of flourishing about in carriages here, which it would be your doom to see without sharing it. You would have to be poor, without the means of hiding your poverty. Do you believe you could bear that patiently? Whatever woman may cast her lot with mine, should any ever do so, it is my intention to do all in my power to make her happy and contented, and there is nothing I can imagine that would make me more unhappy than to fail in the effort. I know I should be much happier with you than the way I am, provided I saw no signs of discontent in you. What you have said to me may have been in the way of jest, or I may have misunderstood it. If so, then let it be forgotten. If otherwise, I much wish you would think seriously before you decide. For my part, I have already decided. What I have said I will most positively abide by, provided you wish it. My opinion is that you had better not do it. You have not been accustomed to hardship, and it may be more severe than you now imagine. I know you are capable of thinking correctly on any subject, and, if you deliberate maturely upon this before you decide, then I am willing to abide your decision. You must write me a good long letter after you get this. You have nothing else to do, and though it might not seem interesting to you after you have written it, it would be a good deal of company to me in this busy wilderness. Tell your sister I don't want to hear any more about selling out and moving. That gives me the hypo whenever I think of it. Yours, etc., Lincoln. Springfield, August 16, 1837. Friend Mary, you will no doubt think it rather strange that I should write you a letter on the same day on which we parted. I can only account for it by supposing that seeing you lately makes me think of you more than usual. While at our late meeting we had but few expressions of thoughts, you must know that I cannot see you, or think of you, with entire indifference. And yet, it may be that you are mistaken in regard to what my real feelings toward you are. If I knew you were not, I should not trouble you with this letter. Perhaps any other man would know enough without further information. But I consider it my peculiar right to plead ignorance, and your bounden duty to allow the plea. I want in all cases to do right, and most particularly so in all cases with women. I want, at this particular time, more than anything else, to do right with you. And if I knew it would be doing right, as I rather suspect it would, to let you alone, I would do it. And, for the purpose of making the matter as plain as possible, I now say that you can now drop the subject, dismiss your thoughts, if you ever had any, from me forever, and leave this letter unanswered, without calling forth one accusing murmur from me. And I will even go further, and say, that, if it will add anything to your comfort or peace of mind to do so, it is my sincere wish that you should. Do not understand by this, that I wish to cut your acquaintance. I mean no such thing. What I do wish is, that our further acquaintance shall depend upon yourself. If such further acquaintance would constitute nothing to your happiness, I am sure it would not to mine. If you feel yourself in any degree bound to me, I am now anxious to release you, provided you wish it. While, on the other hand, I am willing, and even anxious, to bind you faster, if I can be convinced that it will, 
in any considerable degree add to your happiness this indeed is the whole question with me nothing would make me more miserable than to believe you miserable nothing more happy than to know you are so in what i have now said i think i cannot be misunderstood and to make myself understood is the only object of this letter if it suits you best to not answer this farewell a long life and a merry one attend you but if you conclude to write back speak as plainly as i do there can be neither harm nor danger in saying to me anything you think just in the manner you think it my respects to your sister your friend lincoln after his second meeting with mary mr lincoln had little time to prosecute his addresses in person for early in december he was called away to his seat in the legislature but if his tongue was silent in the cause his pen was busy during the session of the legislature of eighteen thirty six thirty seven mr lincoln made the acquaintance of mrs o h browning whose husband was also a member the acquaintance ripened into friendship and that winter and the next mr lincoln spent a great deal of time in social intercourse with the brownings mrs browning knew nothing as yet of the affair with miss owens but as the latter progressed and lincoln became more and more involved she noticed the ebb of his spirits and often rallied him as the victim of some secret but consuming passion with this for his excuse lincoln wrote her after the adjournment of the legislature a full and connected account of the manner in which he had latterly been making a fool of himself for many reasons the publication of this letter is an exceedingly painful duty if it could be withheld and the act decently reconciled to the conscience of a biographer professing to be honest and candid it should never see the light in these pages its grotesque humor its coarse exaggerations in describing the person of a lady whom the writer was willing to marry its imputation of toothless and weather-beaten old age to a woman really young and handsome its utter lack of that delicacy of tone and sentiment which one naturally expects a gentleman to adopt when he thinks proper to discuss the merits of his late mistress all these and its defective orthography it would certainly be more agreeable to suppress than to publish but if we begin by omitting or mutilating a document which sheds so broad a light upon one part of his life in one phase of his character why may we not do the like as fast and as often as the temptations arise and where shall the process cease a biography worth writing at all is worth writing fully and honestly and the writer who suppresses or mangles the truth is no better than he who bears false witness in any other capacity in april eighteen thirty eight miss owens finally departed from illinois and in that same month mr lincoln wrote mrs browning springfield april one eighteen thirty eight dear madam without apologizing for being egotistical i shall make the history of so much of my life as has elapsed since i saw you the subject of this letter and by the way i now discover that in order to give a full and intelligible account of the things i have done and suffered since i saw you i shall necessarily have to relate some that happened before it was then in the autumn of eighteen thirty six that a married lady of my acquaintance and who was a great friend of mine being about to pay a visit to her father and other relatives in residing in kentucky proposed to me that on her return 
she would bring a sister of hers with her on condition that I would engage to become her brother-in-law, with all convenient dispatch. I, of course, accepted the proposal, for you know I could not have done otherwise. Had I really been averse to it, but privately, between you and me, I was most confoundedly well pleased with the project. I had seen the said sister some three years before, thought her intelligent and agreeable, and saw no good objection to plodding life through hand in hand with her. Time passed on, the lady took her journey, and in due time returned, sister and company, sure enough. This astonished me a little, for it appeared to me that her coming so readily showed that she was a trifle too willing, but, on reflection, it occurred to me that she might have been prevailed on by her married sister to come, without anything concerning me ever having been mentioned to her, and so I concluded that, if no other objection presented itself, I would consent to waive this. All this occurred to me on hearing of her arrival in the neighborhood, for, be it remembered, I had not yet seen her, except about three years previous, as above mentioned. In a few days we had an interview, and, although I had seen her before, she did not look as my imagination had pictured her. I knew she was oversized, but she now appeared a fair match for Falstaff. I knew she was called an old maid, and I felt no doubt of the truth of at least half of the appellation. But now, when I beheld her, I could not for my life avoid thinking of my mother. And this, not from withered features, for her skin was too full of fat, quote, to permit of its contracting into wrinkles, but from her want of teeth, weather-beaten appearance in general, and from a kind of notion that ran in my head that nothing could have commenced at the size of infancy and reached her present bulk in less than thirty-five or forty years. And in short, I was not at all pleased with her. But what could I do? I told her sister that I would take her for better or for worse, and I made a point of honor and conscience in all things to stick to my word, especially if others had been induced to act on it which, in this case I had no doubt they had, for I was now fairly convinced that no other man on earth would have her, and hence the conclusion that they were bent on holding me to my bargain. Quote, well, thought I, I have said it, and, be the consequences what they may, it shall not be my fault if I fail to do it. End quote. At once I determined to consider her my wife, and this done, all my powers of discovery were put to work in search of perfections in her, which might be fairly set off against her defects. I tried to imagine her handsome, which, but for her unfortunate corpulency, was actually true. Exclusive of this, no woman that I have ever seen has a finer face. I also tried to convince myself that the mind was much more to be valued than the person, and in this she was not inferior, as I would discover to any with whom I have been acquainted. Shortly after this, without attempting to come to any positive understanding with her, I sat out for Vandalia, when and where you first saw me. During my stay there I had letters from her which did not change my opinion of either her intellect or intention, but on the contrary, confirmed it in both. All this while, although I was fixed, firm as the surge-repelling rock in my resolution, I found I was continually repenting the rashness which had led me to make it. Through life I have been in no bondage, 
either real or imaginary, from the thraldom of which I so much desired to be free. After my return home, I saw nothing to change my opinions of her in any particular. She was the same, and so was I. I now spent my time in planning how I might get along through life after my contemplated change of circumstances should have taken place, and how I might procrastinate the evil day for a time, which I really dreaded as much, perhaps more, than an Irishman does the halter. After all my suffering upon this deeply interesting subject, here I am, wholly, unexpectedly, completely, out of the scrape, and I now want to know if you can guess how I got out of it. Out, clear, in every sense of the term, no violation of word, honor, or conscience. I don't believe you can guess, and so I might as well tell you at once. As the lawyer says, it was done in the manner following, to wit, after I had delayed the matter as long as I thought I could, in honor due, which, by the way, had brought me round into the last fall, I concluded I might as well bring it to a consummation without further delay, and so I mustered my resolution and made the proposal to her direct. But, shocking to relate, she answered, No. At first I supposed she did it through an affectation of modesty, which I thought but ill became her under the peculiar circumstances of her case. But, on my renewal of the charge, I found she repelled it with greater firmness than before. I tried it again and again, but with the same success, or rather, with the same want of success. I finally was forced to give it up, which I very unexpectedly found myself mortified, almost beyond endurance. I was mortified, it seemed to me, in a hundred different ways. My vanity was deeply wounded by the reflection that I had so long been too stupid to discover her intentions, and at the same time never doubting that I understood them perfectly, and also that she, whom I had taught myself to believe nobody else would have, had actually rejected me with all my fancied greatness. And, to cap the whole, I then, for the first time, began to suspect that I was really a little in love with her. But let it all go. I'll try and outlive it. Others have been made fools of by the girls. But this can never with truth be said of me. I most emphatically, in this instance, made a fool of myself. I have now come to the conclusion never again to think of marrying, and for this reason I can never be satisfied with any one who will be blockhead enough to have me. When you receive this, write me a long yarn about something to amuse me. Give my respects to Mr. Browning. Your sincere friend, A. Lincoln. Mrs. O. H. Browning. End of Chapter 9 Recording by Greg Giordano, Newport Ritchie, Florida.